A populist becomes his country's president with a historic win. He's a brash outsider, a relative newcomer, and he promises to drain the swamp. No more politics as usual, he says, because his country is under attack and he's here to save it. But this new president begins to upend democracy, oust his opponents to consolidate power, declares he wants to change the country's constitution to suit him, and trolls his haters on social media all along the way. Sound familiar, America? Well, these are also the hallmarks of Nayib Bukele, the president of El Salvador. And if he succeeds in his power grabs, it has big implications for the United States. I'm Gustavo Arellano. You're listening to The Times, daily news from the LA Times. Today is May 12th, 2021. California declares a drought emergency in 41 counties. The Biden administration okays the first large-scale offshore wind farm in the United States. And Jennifer Lopez and Ben Affleck were spotted together in Montana. See? There is hope for Brad and Jen. On today's show, we have three guests that will take us into this current crisis and how we got here. We'll check in with LA Times reporter Kate Linthicum, El Faro reporter Jimmy Alvarado, and Roberto Lovato, an author who will talk about how Bukele's actions affect the Salvadoran diaspora in the United States. At about 1.8 million, Salvadorans in the United States make up the nation's fourth largest Latino group. The largest concentrations are in the Washington, D.C. area, Texas, and right here in California. The diaspora has long been involved in politics back home, from the days of the country's civil war in the 1980s to today. In early 2019, Nayib Bukele became the 46th president of El Salvador. He was only 37, vigorous and with a love of leather jackets, Instagram, and memes. While mayor of San Salvador, residents who supported him said Bukele cleaned up the capital city. He became the first Salvadoran president who wasn't from either of El Salvador's two established main parties, the left-leaning FMLN and conservative ARENA. There was hope that his victory signaled a new era for the country. But ever since his win, critics say Bukele's vision for El Salvador is mostly about gaining power for himself. Damn anyone else. I'm now joined by my colleague Kate Linthicum. She covers Latin America for The Times and is currently in El Salvador's capital, San Salvador, reporting on what's been happening. Hi, Kate. Hey. Tell us the story of Bukele. Who is he and how did he rise to power? Bukele comes from a wealthy family originally from Palestine and got his start in business. El Salvador has really never seen a politician like Bukele. He wears these leather motorcycle jackets. He has this perfectly trimmed beard. He wears a backwards cap, you know, in meetings with officials. A lot of people say he's sort of the first millennial president and some are calling him the first millennial dictator. And Bukele began as mayor of a suburb of San Salvador, then became mayor of San Salvador, and then became president two years ago. And he did this by using social media in a way like we've rarely seen in this region. He talked constantly to the people via Instagram, via Twitter. Every day he would post photos of a new thing he had done for the city, a new pothole he had filled, you know, a new gang member he had arrested. And this made him really wildly popular really quickly. 
So he was basically campaigning like, oh, you know, I'm changing society, but doing it with memes, with gifts, with hashtags and all that. Yeah, I mean, he definitely had a sense of humor that I think people liked. He was irreverent, a little bit like Donald Trump. And he also said he was different than the two entrenched political parties that had ruled El Salvador since the peace accords of 1992. These two parties, one on the left and one on the right, had both been accused of corruption and both had really failed to bring prosperity to this country. So a lot of people didn't like either of them. So Bukele gets elected in 2019, Kate. How did people think he was going to govern? What were the promises he, he was making? And did people think he'd actually meet them? Yeah, he was elected with very high hopes. He, you know, kind of immediately said, I am going to make it El Salvador a place that people don't have to leave. He said he was going to end forced migration from the country by the end of his term in 2024. Actions that we're taking right now, we'll start to take in the days and weeks to come, will be immediately felt by the people of El Salvador that will eventually not feel the need or the urge to migrate to the United States because we will provide the safety and the, and the economical environment for them to not to feel the urge and the need to flee to another country. And he's kind of made strides toward that. I mean, we've seen lots of migration at the border in recent months, in recent years. Less of it is coming from El Salvador than it is from Honduras and Guatemala. So he's claiming victory on that front, at least. Did people think Bukele would act the way he has in consolidating power? Like, would he say during the campaign, these are my plans, this is what I'm going to do, but no one believed him then, and then he actually went on and did it? Yeah, absolutely. He really shocked people when in 2019 he took the military into the Congress, basically, when they refused to pass a bill that he wanted. And he sat there, you know, in, in the Congress, flanked by the military and said, now we're going to see who, who really runs this country. And for people who lived through a civil war, um, you know, where the military committed a lot of atrocities and, and had a lot of power, that's an unsettling image. And then what we saw just a few days ago on the 1st of May took it to the next level. After his party won a huge majority in Congress, they immediately moved to kick out five members of the Supreme Court that had opposed Bukele. And two days later, they fired the attorney general. And so critics say this is tantamount to a coup. This is unconstitutional. And he's essentially taking control of the judiciary. We'll have more after this break. So, Kate, can you describe the recent actions of El Salvador's president, Nayib Bukele? Why are his opponents saying that what he's doing is endangering democracy in El Salvador? Well, he's the executive branch essentially taking control of the judicial branch. So the checks and balances that existed in El Salvador's democracy, you know, are kind of disappearing. A really interesting point that a lot of people are raising is that for many Salvadorans, maybe that democracy, that promise of democracy um, was unfulfilled. People are saying, I'm getting these baskets of food from the president. I'm getting direct cash payments. Crime appears to be going down. Those are real changes I can see in my life. Whereas the promise of democracy and prosperity that we saw after the peace accords, those were always kind of just promises and maybe hadn't been fulfilled. 
And because of that, Bukele is really, really popular in El Salvador. How has the public reacted to his actions? People are really happy with him. I went out last night to the streets of San Salvador to talk to people. I went to a street lined with pupusa stands um, and spoke with some people who were waiting for their orders. One of them was Sonia Tovar de Urbina, who's a 40-year-old woman with a few kids. She was waiting for her pupusas, and she told me that, that Bukele is the best president El Salvador has ever had. She says, as Salvadorans, we feel that we have a president who is fighting for us. And when I asked her why, she told me it was because she now feels a sense of security. She says, ever since Bukele took office, she feels more comfortable walking in the streets. And what I noticed is that everyone sort of mentioned the same things, that they love that Bukele speaks directly to the people in that populist way, and that he had brought safety to El Salvador. And it's true. Government statistics show that homicides have fallen, although there are questions about that. Some say it's because Bukele has this more effective security policy that has brought crime down. Others insist that he's brokered a gang truce, which previous El Salvadoran governments have done. And so homicides have fallen, the streets are safer, but the question is why. U.S. Vice President Kamala Harris brought up the situation in El Salvador with Bukele's moves in a speech earlier this month. Just this weekend, we learned that the Salvadoran parliament moved to undermine its nation's highest court. An independent judiciary is critical to a healthy democracy and a strong economy. On this front, on every front, we must respond. Given the long-time involvement in Central America, Kate, do you think comments like that are going to help or hurt Bukele's opponents? So I think that the United States is in a really difficult position here. It needs partners in Central America if it wants to fight poverty, fight crime, and eventually reduce migration, which, of course, is the biggest priority for the Biden administration. But the leaders in Central America are making it really difficult for the Americans. I spoke recently to a congressional aide who said, we have no good partners in Central America. El Salvador, you have Bukele, who is kind of eroding these democratic checks and balances. In Honduras, you have a president who has been linked by U.S. Justice Department officials with drug traffickers. So it's a difficult position for the U.S. And at the same time, they're afraid of the rising influence of China, which has contributed a lot of kind of direct money to El Salvador and has, it seems, a lot of sway over Bukele. What are the challenges ahead for him then? He's trying to amass all this power, but obviously he sees something on the horizon that makes him think like, I need to secure where I'm at right now. One of Bukele's biggest challenges is money. He has spent a lot throughout the pandemic keeping his people fed. And that has meant that he's wildly popular and people really approve particularly of his handling of the pandemic but it also means he's kind of running out of money. So he's asked for a giant loan from the International Monetary Fund, the IMF. And the issue now is, is that fund going to be approved? Will it be approved on some based on some conditions? They could ask him or demand, you know, that he kind of 
recommits to democratic values and either undoes some of the things he's done in recent days or just commits, you know, to to holding up these democratic norms going forward. Thank you so much for this interview, Kate. Thank you. Coming up, a conversation about how Bukele's moves affects the Salvadoran diaspora in the United States and American policy in Central America. Roberto Lovato is a longtime Salvadoran-American activist and writer. Born in San Francisco, he's long been involved in Salvadoran issues in the U.S. and in El Salvador. His memoir, Unforgetting, a memoir of family, migration, gangs, and revolution in the Americas, does a great job of illustrating the Salvadoran diaspora in the U.S. through the experience of his family. What's up, Roberto? Hey, Gustavo. Good to be with you on your new platform. (laughs) I appreciate it, man. Let's start in El Salvador, especially during the 1980s, during the revolution. You grew up in the Bay Area, but during the 80s, you went to El Salvador to fight against the Salvadoran state. And you you told me in, in your memoir, you say that one in every three Salvadorans at the time were organizing against the state. Yeah. And you're, when you're dealing with Salvadorans, you're dealing with a highly political, highly organized, left-leaning community that also has a very strong right-wing component, as you see with the neo-fascist president right now, Nayib Bukele, who has just kind of staged a a judicial coup, which is en route to, I think, a uh, trying to create a permanent dictatorship. And so what you're seeing right now, it, it harkens back memories of what was going on in El Salvador during the 1980s. Yeah, in, in my book, Unforgetting, I describe the ways that Salvadorans had been organizing when I was visiting in El Salvador as a kid, where my cousins which, you know, take me into their rooms and quietly and sotto voce and low voice talk to me about rebel music, you know, anti-government poetry um, and the ways that poets actually formed revolutionary organizations in El Salvador. And so that the, the distinction between poetry and politics was never there. And that kind of fascinated me as somebody that, that liked to read and write, even when I was a kid. And I've watched as... I started learning about El Salvador when I got to college more, and I learned that cousins of mine had been guerrillas, mostly women. Yeah, for people who don't know, the American military provided training and guidance to the Salvadoran military. The most notorious example is the Salvadoran Army's Atlacatl Battalion. In 1981, they killed nearly 1,000 unarmed men, women, and children in the village of El Mosote. The New York Times recently described the slaughter as, quote, the largest single massacre in Latin America's contemporary history. And just three months earlier, the group had finished training at the U.S. Army School of the Americas in Fort Benning, Georgia. So the the war literally started coming home in the 80s. I had cousins coming to live with us because of the war. The war really came home and I said, oh, you know, I better go do what's right. And I decided to go to El Salvador. So I, you know, I started going. I saw the countryside and what was happening in places like Arcatao. And I was like, you know, just just devastated by the the levels of of mass murder and, and, and killing of women, children, elderly, entire towns being wiped out. And I thought, you know, I have to do something about this. My government is the one doing this. And I even threw away my American identity. I never called myself American again from that moment in 1989. 
Roberto, the Salvadoran diaspora, fourth largest Latino group in the United States. How was it for them when they started coming in and mastering the 1980s? What was the community like back then? Well, you're dealing with a very immigrant community. I mean, the Salvadorans have been in the United States since the 19th century, but really in large numbers since the 80s. So my parents came in the 50s, and they've come in waves, depending on what was happening in El Salvador, right? So the most recent migration in the 80s was most established an immigrant community here and very highly political, as, I, as I've said. Their political asylum applications in the early 80s were rejected to the tune of 97%. So you have a community that from the beginning had to struggle and fight. So more people now know what temporary protected status is, TPS. It's a government program that allows foreigners to live in the U.S. without threat of deportation for a limited time. What people don't know is the Salvadorans help bring that about. Or, you know, sanctuary. What we call sanctuary and immigrant rights, Salvadorans created to protect the refugees who are coming from police abuse um, in collaboration with the Immigration and Naturalization Service, the predecessor of ICE. How is Bukele received here in the United States among the diaspora? Because, you know, I know a lot of Salvadoran friends and they don't like him at all. They're telling me what you say. But then you hear maybe some of the older folks saying, oh, you know, he's good because he's cutting down on the corruption and the violence. And we need like a strong person to be able to get El Salvador back on track. Right. You know, Bukele will wear these hats and use language that's, uh, you know, hip and, 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 and tweet very effectively so that some in the U.S., diaspora are, in fact, supportive of Bukele, despite him being a neo-fascist. You have to remember that there's also a component of El Salvador's population, you know, besides that one-third that was radicalized, some people were were radicalized to the right. They were, you know, you're talking about the country with the longest-standing military dictatorship in Latin American history, El Salvador, since 1932 till we defeated them in 92 and brought them to the negotiating table for the peace accords, the Salvadoran government has been consistently fascist military dictatorship. And so that has an effect not just on the government, but on the institutions, the education system that our parents grow up in, the conversations at the dinner table, the fact that some of us have family members who are former guerrillas, who are also former death squad operatives, right? So it's uh, it's complicated to say the least with Salvadoran. There's, so Naibu Kell is playing the the teclas, the the black and white chords of the piano of old school fascism in El Salvador to bring it up to date for a digital age. You know, he's taken out the Supreme Court. He's taken out the attorney general, replaced him with stooges. He's attacked the media consistently. I mean, he's doing what Donald Trump wishes he could do, you know, could have done more. And he doesn't even try to hide it. Uh, I saw on Instagram, he posted this video of Hitler and Stalin all of a sudden singing that crappy 80s song, Video Killed the uh, uh, Radio Star. And he puts as a caption, Te amo, Internet. I love you, Internet. Yeah, no, this is a guy who, right, you know, as he's attacking congressional members and the media, you know, he'll keep repeating this this silly phrase from Game of Thrones, Dracarys, you know, trying to imitate... Um, Kali- Khaleesi, the, 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 you know, the, the queen who had the fire. And anytime you say Dracarys, her dragons would just unleash untold hellfire on people. The white savior woman who <laughs> became a fascist, right? She became a fascist at the end. So it's telling that Bukele would use that to normalize his behavior as a, 
militarist, as an anti-media. He's been condemned worldwide. Even Kamala Harris and Anthony Blinken have had to condemn him, despite the fact that they haven't cut off aid. If it, they really thought it was a coup or condemnable, they would cut off aid, but they're not. Well, what about here in the United States? Are you starting to see like uh, activists starting to coalesce to oppose Bukele up here and, and then by default down in El Salvador? Yeah, yeah, it's happening. People like at uh, the Community Solidarity, people of El Salvador, a lot of Central American groups are starting to, to organize protests, have meetings and figure out how they're going to attack us. I think this is the long term. As someone who's actually fought fascism, you don't do it overnight. You've got to think it through. It's a long term struggle. And we could learn that from ourselves here in the U.S., which is the reason I wrote Unforgetting, right, was to kind of like talk about what sustainable struggle in an age of epic crisis like we're in looks like. What what role, if any, should the American government play to try and check Bukele? You mentioned that Kamala Harris criticized uh, his actions, also Anthony Blinken. What, what else should the American government do? So, uh, you know, we're dealing with uh, a duplicitous U.S. government that is and notoriously unable to wean itself from the addiction to supporting fascists, dictators, militarists, and mass murders across the Americas. So um, really, a, a real sign would be to cut off major sources of military policing and other aid, sanctioning Bukele and his, and his people, freeze their assets, do all the things you do when you have, when you really believe there is a dictator in place. Thank you so much for this interview, Roberto. My pleasure, Gustavo. In the meantime, other major institutions that would protect democracy in El Salvador are being attacked as well. As a final note, we turn to Jimmy Alvarado. He's a journalist with El Faro, which translates to The Lighthouse. It calls itself the first digital newspaper in Latin America. The publication has been highly critical of Bukele. El Salvador's president, in turn, has trashed El Faro on social media and worse. Last year, for example, he tried to build a money laundering case against, against El Faro, and he failed because the highest court didn't admit uh, the actions of the treasury who was being used by Bukele to, to prosecute El Faro. But right now, uh, there is no high score. The highest score is Bukele. So what we have seen is a very dangerous scenario for doing journalism right now in, in El Salvador. And it wasn't just El Faro. President Bukele accused a number of Salvadoran outlets of lying and attacking the government, according to the Committee to Protect Journalists. For Jimmy, it's not just the press who is under attack by Bukele. He contrasts the situation right now in El Salvador to the United States. In the United States, you're, you're not going to see that. You're not going to see a president who controls the Congress. You're not going to see a, a president who, who controls the highest courts. You're not going to see a president who controls the the police and the army uh, without supervision of the Congress or the highest court. Jimmy says Bukele's latest action in May, you remember, removing the attorney general and judges from the Supreme Court, that's the last strike on democratic institutions in El Salvador. Jimmy says he's seen this happen in Latin America before. We have seen it in Cuba. 
We have seen this in Venezuela. We're seeing that in Nicaragua. And right now we're seeing that in Honduras. And this is not, not, not a new concept of how to rule a country. 30 years ago, El Salvador was ruled that way. We had like a century with military dictators. That dictatorship just ended in, in 1979. And then we had the civil war and only the civil war opened the path for democracy in 1992. So what we have seen is like we're traveling back to the past, to a dark, dark past. Thank you so much for this interview, Jimmy. Thank you. And that's it for this episode of The Times, daily news from the LA Times. Our show is produced by Shannon Lynn, Stephen A. Cuevas, and Denise Guerra. Our executive producer is Abby Fentress-Swanson. Our editors are Julia Turner and Jeffrey Fleischman. Our engineer is Mario Diaz, and the theme music is by Andrew Epen. Tomorrow, a roundtable with LA Times environmental reporters called The Masters of Disasters. Mother Nature has no chill, fam. I'm Gustavo Arellano. We'll be back tomorrow with all the news and desmadre. Gracias. Gracias.